Welcome to the Critical Media Studies Podcast. We're your hosts, Mike Rapici and Barry Falk. Hey, Barry, good morning. How are you? Good morning. How are you today, Michael? I'm excited. I think we got some interesting stuff to chat about today. Uh, today, we are going to have a little discussion about techno-fatalism and whether or not there is a moral alternative to it. Uh, the plan today is going to be to talk around about an article by Chris Gow uh, and his response to Ted Joya, who previously we've spoken about. Uh, he wrote an article in The Atlantic uh, asking whether or not new music was suffering, I think, old, whether or not old music is killing new music, I think is the way. So in, in other words, we're going to be revisiting some topics that listeners hopefully uh, know about or they can easily find on our playlist uh, because we're going to be discussing a Joya article that we previously discussed before. And right. we're going to revisit it in light of what uh, the Dean of American Rock Criticism, uh, Robert Criscow, has to say about it. Absolutely. So um, you want to get us started? Um, so maybe I should say something about who Robert Christgau is. Robert Christgau is part of the first generation of uh, American rock critics loosely associated with Rolling Stone. But come to think of it, uh, or rather a lot of those first generation rock critics uh, were men who were writing for, not exclusively men, but a lot of them were men. And they were writing exclusive, you know, pretty much either for Rolling Stone magazine or Cream magazine. Um, Chris Gow, in a little bit, in a way, is an outlier uh, in the sense that while he was affiliated with all those, that generation, or he's clearly in that generation of rock criticism um, and affiliated loosely with that group, he mainly made his name by doing, um, by giving <laughs> letter grades. He had a thing called uh, the Chris Gow Consumer Guide that was published in Village Voice for, you know, from the late 60s, all the way till the Village Voice went under as a print uh, venue, right? Uh, until it went online and a little bit beyond, uh, I think it's online, uh, uh, what transformation. But anyway, Chris Gow's business is that he would review tons and tons of records and he would call, he called what he was doing for the Village Voice a sort of pop consumer guide. And he would give A's and A pluses and B's and B minuses to records. And, um, but he very much represents a kind of the old guard, really the first generation of rock critics from the 60s and 70s. And, and that's important because this is kind of the first generation of journalists that were taking rock music seriously and kind of doing, this is important to note, um, and, because I think it fits in with what we're doing today, what, we're, what he's doing today and what we're talking about today. Usually this generation of rock critics, they talked about the music and sometimes they were incredibly aesthetically savvy. They talked about the aesthetics of music and the aesthetics of rock and tried to give it a uh, its own legitimation. But the other thing that was going on a lot with Chris Gow uh, is that there was kind of a sociology of youth culture that was coming up in their writing. So um, in other words, they did not necessarily differentiate between music and social commentary and social reflection. So, and I get, they were doing it for a pretty obvious reason. At that point, rock music was pop music and you could say that uh, now, and, and popular culture. So in talking about rock music, you could just not, you could justifiably, understandably, you felt that you were commenting on 
um, society, right? Social issues as well as musical issues. And so they tended to blend the two. This is what Chris Gow is doing today. So we'll refer to it. Why are we, so anyway, I hope it's probably a little too much context about Chris Gow, but that's okay because too much information, hell, that's what we do. That's what we're proud of in critical media studies. But let's get back on topic. Um, this caught my eye and I brought it to this article and now Chris Gow, uh, the poor Dean, uh, I should say that he self-styled himself as the Dean of American rock critics. Is that insufferably New York? Is that That's, insufferably pretentious or what? It's also great. It's also fucking fantastic. Okay. We love Chris Gow. All right. Um, he now has, um, he now has a uh, newsletter, which of course Barry Falk subscribes to. So, uh, and it, the newsletter is called Chris Gow says, and he has a brief repost to Ted Joyous piece on the Atlantic that uh, begins with something marvelously bitchy. We should probably mention that. And then goes on to make some comments. Um, and, and I brought it to Michael's attention. We wanted to talk about it because it allows us a chance to sort of revisit um, our thoughts on the Ted Joy arguments. So I, I wanna read the little, I didn't plan to do this, but Michael, I have it in front of me and uh, in glorious hard copy. And I think I wanna read the marvelously bitchy sentence that precedes his analysis and his more intellectual response to, uh, um, to Mr. Joya's argument. I value the Atlantic Monthly, that, that's who published Mm -hmm. Joya, because it does some of the best political reporting and analysis in America. Not because I pay much mind to its music coverage. Come on, <laughs> Ted Joya. Let's continue uh, with the bitch fest. Ted Joya, who wrote the article you referred to, uh, Chris Gow, um, uh, you know, responds to letters to the editor, and that's what his new column is basically. He has a commentary, but he also responds to letters and questions to uh, the Dean of Rock Criticism. Ted Joya, who wrote the article you refer to, is a music historian of impressive breadth and appetite, whose intellectual acuity is, that sounds good, let, let me slow-mo slow -mo that sentence, is a music historian of impressive breadth and appetite. Now, I would want the Dean of American Rock Criticism to tell me about that. But what I want this fist in the velvet glove to hit me, um, whose intellectual acuity is nothing special, mofo, right? And whose heart is with jazz, i.e. not with pop. See this review of one of his recent books that I wrote for the LA Times. In other words, Chris Gow is pointing out that he's already dismissed Mr. Joya in other venues, in, in respectable venues Which, like the LA Times. So I'm, I'm going to make my first little interruption <laughs> here. It's funny. It is funny. Um, but it speaks to a problem that I think sort of undermines the, the goal, the overall goal, right? Um, mm. This reeks of elitism. I mean, everything from calling yourself the dean right straight on down to dismissing him because he's in jazz uh or or wherever else his heart there. lies with, it, it's not even that he can't talk about rock or whatever he's just saying his heart lies with jazz so why is he going to talk about popular music right and the, the the point the point that i want to make those one so we've we've made this sort of an argument based on genre specificity right like right. oh you're in the wrong camp but i think a bigger problem with this, you know, to, to sort of bring this back into focus a little bit, if we're talking about fatalism, right? Uh, techno fatalism, the, the problem that I see that I'm responding to already, just a couple of lines in, this is all preamble still, is that we are already 
determining which voices matter and which ones don't in the in this uh, debate, right? In this debate about yeah, but uh, also it, it, it as sort of a, a a preliminary move to setting up what is going to likely be an absolute right and an absolute wrong, mm. and and so I'm um mm. you know again. Uh, I, full disclosure here, right? I've not read this. I'm, I'm coming in as an outside voice. Um, but there, there's, I mean, there's already flags coming up. So in terms of discussing techno fatalism and a moral alternative, um, <laughs> I, I think that right now, the big red flag for me uh, is spelled E-G-O, right? Like this idea that, um, that, there, that there are some sort of, you know, the, the rules of the rules of rock criticism or something, which is mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I or music like, criticism music in more criticism, general, which, right? is, which yeah. is, I mean, and let's be, let's be clear. I think this is alive and healthy, right? Like this sort of snobbery is what drives the presses that we look to for direction in terms of, well, what should I be listening to? These are the trendsetters, but it's also a problem. Uh, what did you say about the, the red letter word here is EGO or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. I want that on my t-shirt. I want a t-shirt about that. We're going to have to do critical media studies, podcast t-shirts and that's going to be ego. on it. All right. um, just say EGO. Um, okay. Now you're right, Michael, that was preamble. Now we're going to get into the serious shit. Okay? Yeah. And it begins here to me after he dismisses and qualifies uh, poor Mr. Joya. Uh, Chris Cow goes, this is the part that we're, that caught my eye and that I wanted to share and with our re our listeners and, and with, of course, with my wonderful co-hosts. To me, it seems as if the stats of Joyous Sites have a much simpler and less momentous explanation. And that's what we're going to tarry with right now. Okay, first point. And what's going to follow are a couple scattered points that he feels, that Chris Cow feels are the reasonable solution, a more reasonable uh, hypothesis or account or explanation for the phenomenon of the death of old, the death of new, new music. music. Okay. At the so, hands of, at the hands at, of old music. I think at, just right. in the event that you're haven't listened to our earlier episode. Yeah. Familiar, yeah. Please, jo jo please. Joya's argument in a nutshell was that old music is killing new music, that right. more people are listening to what he calls old right. music. And right. then as a result, um, record companies and A&R aren't investing in new music and therefore uh, the, the, you know, your parents' music is going to be the reason why you have nothing interesting to listen to. Got it. Uh, thanks for, I think, I, I thank you for that pithy summary. Okay. Continuing first people listen to more older music first people listen to more older music because every year there's more of it. In addition, these things are categorized relatively, the way these things are categorized, relatively recent albums are classified as catalog. So therefore, I added the therefore, but this is part of what, to illustrate his logic, the logic he's making. Therefore, almost all of streaming champ Taylor Swift's 12 albums qualify as old music. Let me read one more sentence. And then I think we can, he gave us enough to comment on here. Electrical recording is now just under a century year, century old. What we might call hi-fi dates back to the rise of the LP circa 1948, that post-war uh, associated with the post-World War II economic boom. At that moment, pop became, actually later moment, pop would become a billion-dollar business with the profusion of new product that boom generated circa 71. Crucially, 
digitization and then streaming made more music more available early in this century. Okay, that gives us a lot to chomp at and, and chomp on. Uh, do we want to unpack some things? I, I can start off, or unless you want to start off. Um, go ahead. Let, let's let I'll follow you on this one. I've got a lot of thoughts, but I'm gonna I'm gonna let you drive. Well, I I I, I don't want to drive it, but I I can just say the I'm just going to try to paraphrase his bigger argument or try to summarize the bigger argument he's making in these couple of sentences. Uh, the bigger argument he's making, he's pointing to a kind of lot, you know, Joya was making this emotive explanation. Oh my, because you remember that article you know, to, mm-hmm. remind our, to remind our listeners. That article, there was a kind of emotional kick to it. There was a kind of pathos to it because the argument that old music uh, was going to be dominating listener streams. That was key to this argument, a more emotive argument about the death of the culture, the death of music, that um, if old music is so primary in our listening habits, uh, then therefore new music is going to be threatened or under, you know, under the threat of extinction. So there was a kind of emotive argument. And I see Chris enjoy his piece uh, there was an emotional kick at the heart of the piece. And I see one of the things that Chris Gow seems to be pushing back on is saying, hey, let's not get emotional about this stuff. Let's think about just the logic of streaming and the logic of, say, the Spotify archive. Because it is an archive. And because we're talking about archiving recorded music, not just 50 years ago or 60 years ago, but we're talking about archiving Taylor Swift's albums from a decade ago, right? Mm-hmm. You know. Because that's what we mean by the archive when we're talking about the archive of streaming music. Um, just think about it logically. Don't think about it emotively, I imagine Chris Gow saying. Um, just think about it logically. Of course, people are going to be listening to older music because the logic of the archives that older music is going to be kind of the first thing that one responds to. And Okay, yeah. so that, that was my... I mean, that's my, I'm trying to not go through every point, but that's my, how would you respond to my summary of his point? I think it's right. I I think that the problem that Joya has in his argument is that by definition, all music that you're listening to is to some degree old music and there's infinitely more of it. Of it. So, um, that's that's the first point. It, now, what is it killing new music? And I think the problem that he's got. And so, first of all, I, I, I get Joya's argument and it's like, oh, but to me, it sort of reeks as the, you know, curmudgeon yelling, get off my lawn. Right. Like, oh, we're not listening to anything good. The problem is that music, archived music, streamed music is fundamentally different than the traditional album. Which I think is what Chris Gow is saying. Right. You know, in Joy's defense, when you say that it's a curmudgeonly argument, it's a caring and compassionate curmudgeonly argument in the sense that he says, I am worried about the future. I'm worried about these kids who are on my lawn. I'm worried they can't make music anymore. So they're just a a minor defense. But Chris Gow is just saying, that's not the point. Well, I think think that the, the problem is that whether or not Joya's right or wrong, Mm -hmm. as far as I'm concerned, is is beside the point. Um, I I think the bigger question for me with this is what's going on 
with streaming music. And Got it. Um, the and I agree. I agree. And, and and the thing that, that that comes to mind here, one of the big differences is that is the way again that, that, that services like Spotify or Apple Music or you know what whatever you want to listen to is set up. Um, the the archives just doing different things, and I think that you know historians are probably or critics uh, of a certain age are just habituated into looking at music as an album, as a discrete unit that stands, you know, aside other discrete units. And one of the interesting things I got a funny story about this actually. Um, Streaming music resists the album. I mean, it's all about the individual song. Yeah, please. Even even the playlist, what makes a good playlist is a certain amount. And here's a term I'm going to make up a certain amount of sort of cohesive dissonance. Right. Like we're going to be coining shit throughout like that? this episode. Yeah. I like it. this. I'm a cohesive dissonance. dissonance. That's our and, second. And, and, and the, the idea is that you're going to take stuff. And this is this. So it does a couple things, right? Like what, what, what these playlists do is, is obliterate the idea of the album. So first my story, Please. um, I have absolutely loved what streaming music can do for me in terms of classical music. Right. So um, I, I listen to a lot of classical music and maybe it's trying to, to sort of give myself some headspace from what the last two and a half, three years has been like. Um, maybe it's trying to give my kids sort of a, you know, a different perspective on things. But one of the things that will often happen is and I have a paid Spotify account, so I should be able to call out albums and get full albums. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and sometimes I do, but the thing that always kills me is I, and I, 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 dear listener, I implore you to try this at home. I will ask Spotify to play me Yo-Yo Ma, the cellist, right? So play I'll say, me Yo-Yo Ma. And you know what happens? <laughs> yeah. I routinely get four or five Yo-Yo Ma tracks. Right. And then Miley Cyrus covering Metallica's "Nothing Else Matters," and you can say why what you is want. that? Why is that? Well, I, my initial thought is that Spotify hates me, right? Because it is it it, it is probably the singular most. It, it, it's a horrible track, and when you're looking for whatever it is that Yo Yo Ma is going to bring you, the last thing you want is this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not that I have any problem with Miley Cyrus or that I have any problem with um you know metallica but the two together do not work and the two together in a space that's supposed to be set aside for yo-yo ma absolutely do not work but my point is not whether or not spotify's fucking with me the point because it is um the, the the bigger point here is that this happens regularly where you'll be listening to something and you'll get this curveball th- you get this curveball that just doesn't make sense but then oh it's a part of some playlist and so what it shows you though is that one, Spotify resists the album as we traditionally understand it. Two, what these playlists and what the modern incarnation of a grouping of songs is, is really largely post-genre. Like it doesn't need to fit a particular extrinsically labeled thing, right? And this, I think, is the problem that we have. It's like, oh my God, why can't I get this 
this thing. Spotify doesn't want that. It, the idea is to is to to spread it differently. I think. So that would be, which I mean, what do you, what do you think? Well, Michael, I have a I have a lot of thoughts actually. Uh, I found your. Um, it's always great when you reflect on your experiences because I think it gives me and the listeners a kind of toehold uh, kind of way of thinking about this material. And one, uh, one of the things your comments suggested to me in terms, maybe we can articulate our critique, our loving critique of Joya in a more specific way um, than even the Dean of American Rock Studies is making, because what, what you were, what you were doing in your, your anecdote, your reflection on your experience is what you were doing is you were kind of reflecting on the medium. And I think that's what Chris Gow, um, seizes on in Joya's and realizes is a limitation of Joya's critique. Um, but perhaps he doesn't, doesn't go all the way there with it. When I talk about reflections on the specificity of medium, who am I thinking of? Of course, I'm thinking uh, our dear listeners of our dear friend, our dear friend, uh, uh, Marshall, Marshall McLuhan. And, and specifically what McLuhan would enjoy, you know, tell us to consider is the specificity of the medium. Uh, and the, and what, your, uh, what your stories were illustrating is that the medium of Spotify has its own, because of the algorithm for and other reasons, it has its own peculiar or powerful determining structural logic. And that's what really, you know, at the core of what your, uh, your stories is, you were revealing, you were talking about your encounter as a listener, uh, your encounters with the specific specificities of practice of using that particular medium. And that is, I think, what Joya left out. And Chris Gal, I think maybe he doesn't re he realizes it, but perhaps his critique is st still could use some McLuhan. I think that that's I, I, our, you know, we're trying to be generous in our critique. We're us I'm using the word critique, but not in the sense of, oh, I think these people are full of shit. Um, you know, in the sense of we're trying to get a better argument. And I think a better argument would take account of the specificity of medium. That's what McLuhan would push us toward. And I think you were doing that intuitively when you were reflecting on your own interactions with the medium. So, so what's an, a nicer way, a less bitchy way of doing the Chris Gow critique of Joya? It would be to say that what he's not thinking about uh, is the specific way in which the, there is an archiving function to the platform and the archive function of the platform, but it's a streaming platform. There's another sort of counter logic uh, built into the structure of the medium. Your discussion, your comments, and Chris Gow comments, I think you're, you're both pointing toward a medium specificity that Joya doesn't really take into account to. And, and I think we, we feel that we need to uh, take account. Let me segue from there to make a separate point invoking another dear friend. Sure. And then we're going to we're going to return right back to the uh, the free form reading of um, Chris Gow's response. We invoked uh, McLuhan there. Uh, I also want to invoke Raymond Williams because I think that is it's an idea I've been toying with since you and I Michael were talking about doing this episode. Uh, and I was thinking about Spotify and the metaphors that Raymond William uses to talk about the interface between economic structures and economic imperatives 
and ways of thinking, modes of thinking, modes of practice in a society, I think are very helpful uh, to think about the contradictions of, of, of Spotify, which I think you were also illustrating and adumbrating in your particular example. So let me get a little bit more specific. Raymond Williams talks about, you know, at any moment when you slice into a society or a culture, he says there are a number of things going on. There is a structure of feeling uh, by which he kind of means the particular mode of production, the way people make money. That's always interfacing with certain ideas about, <laughs> about living and about life. And he says there was always a tension between older ways of inhabiting older modes of thought and the newer modes of thought. I'm being reductive here, but I want, I want us to get to the finish line quicker. So I, I, you know, we can talk about the ins and outs of the residual and emergent structures mm -hmm. of feeling more another day. But the quick summary for our purposes, there's always a tension between current practices, in this case, a current practice enabled by technology. There's always gonna be these old, you know, no matter how Spotify and streaming services try to represent the new and try to kickstart the future, there's always going to be residual practices that get in their way and my way. And just one, one thing to, to illustrate it because you were talking about it. Um, your examples were always talking about, were often referring to the, uh, and this is you know why I think Williams is helpful. As I understood your commentary, you were talking about the album form as a residual structure, a kind of ghost, literally a ghost in the machine that haunts Spotify and how listeners interact with it. Yeah, so I have a quick question. Sure. Uh, I'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this. I think if I'm understanding you right, you're using Williams to talk about sort of a cultural turnover, right? As yeah. we move from the old to the to new, new and the new becomes the norm and the old becomes the residual. And yeah. we're talking yeah. about this with uh, sort of McLuhan on our shoulder saying, hey, you know, pay attention to the medium. The medium is 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 is, is I'm I message message. It's it's the, the content is secondary to the container. And as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, we've seen this before. And we've seen it multiple times, but it's interesting. There's there's a difference. And I'm thinking specifically about the move from the LP or the record to the eight track and or the cassette, and then the move from the cassette to the CD, and then the move from the CD to digital, right? And in each of those cases, you have the so forget about streaming for a second just think about the move from record to tape to disc right you still have a physical artifact that is an album right with the record you put it on to play you have side a you have side b it requires to listen to the entirety of the album it requires physical interaction in terms of flipping it over right um you can skip 
from one song to the next on the record you have to lift the lid lift the arm move the needle find the blank spot in the, in, in in the vinyl put it down right in a tape it's fast forward play fast forward play fast forward play there's hunting phenomenology yeah 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 whereas phenomenology of, of encountering a physical object and listening right but the cd represented an interesting break uh-huh. where you could hit track forward three times and skip to three songs. You could program your CD player to play these songs, not those songs. So the CD to me represented the first rupture with the form of the album, despite maintaining its integrity. Right. And then obviously the CD as sort of being compatible with the computer in a way that the record and the tape weren't, gives birth to this digital thing where now you've actually found a way to strip the tracks from the whole. But I'm wondering if you've got thoughts, if we think about the medium as the message mm-hmm. and, and, and these mm-hmm. rollovers from the old to the new, mm-hmm. um, why we, is it just because, I guess the question I'm trying to ask here is why is it mm-hmm. that we didn't have this massive rupture that we're seeing in full display with streaming services. Like why didn't it, why didn't this rupture happen immediately? Why didn't the, did, I mean, did the disc, did the cassette? So like the difference between the mm-hmm. record and the cassette, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that you couldn't duplicate a record, but cassettes ushered in mixtapes, right? right. But the right. mixtape never brought about the same mm-hmm. sort of schism, the same, you know, challenge to, to genre, uh, or, or to form it instead it was its own form. Right. Right. And, and, and with CDs, uh, the big thing with the CD was sort of ease and portability again, but, and then when you, when, when, when the blank CDs became a thing, you know, like, what is it probably 15, 20 years after we started with the medium, um, what you got was again, a mixtape. Whereas it seems to me that Mm -hmm. with, streaming services we're no longer talking about mixes so much as we really i feel we're talking about more of a post-genre world Mm -hmm. and i'm wondering if that's just because the scale is so much bigger or if it's something else and so in terms of talking about the emergent and the residual and the dominant you know with Mm -hmm. with williams uh i'm wondering why we didn't see it before now well i what brilliant questions. I loved your, I, and I love the way I have so many thoughts uh, inspired by your, because by the details of your argument, like for example, uh, though this would be a digression, I'll throw it out there. Um, I think we could have a longer conversation and an interesting conversation about the cassette tape, because, you know, retroactively 20 years after the cassette mixtape, um, there were several books, I think Rob Sheffield's book, that talk about the mixtape. And I, I can think of two or three books that I saw like 10 years ago that were talking about the mixtape. And it's very interesting. It, and it proves McLuhan, proves McLuhan's uh, thesis. When they talk about the mixtape, even though they're writing in the age of streaming, mm-hmm. they often in the illustrations for the book, guess what they include? It's a cassette. They, they include the cassette. So there is a way in which that change was 
medium specific, but to get to your question and sort of to keep this discussion anchored, I'm going to do a tentative answer, or actually I'm going to repeat your tentative, your answer, uh, and offer that as a tentative answer to your great question, which is, I think it is all about scale. And I would also add one thing about it. What Williams tell, actually, Williams' um, conceptual apparatus, where there's a constant tension between, and any, you know, the premise of Williams' conceptual apparatus, the idea behind this, this notion, this argument, that at any moment when you cut into time, any moment you cut into, you can never get the pure present, you can never get the pure past, and you can never get the pure future. That any moment you cut into, any media moment you cut into, it's necessarily going to be threefold. I think that's another, uh, th I think that's another partial explanation for, there's always going to be lag, Michael. That's So I think, I think that's a fantastic answer. Um, you know, our little Neapolitan present, right? Um, but so here's another question for you. Indeed. Um, that's another t-shirt for you. T-shirt, Neapolitan um, present. So we talked. PD, PC. <laughs> we, we talked at the beginning about techno fatalism and a moral imperative, or excuse me, a moral alternative. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering now, and I don't know, man, maybe this throws a monkey wrench into everything, or maybe uh -oh. this is the carpet out here, but is this idea of morality, hmm. is this just nostalgia, right? Like, no, no, like, no, no. I, I think I have a quick answer to that. Okay. Maybe it's unfair, but I have a quick answer. Go ahead, finish your. Well, I, no, I, I, I was just you? thinking about like, the, so we talk about sort of, you know, we, we started this discussion with, um, you know, Gao and Joya and, oh, it's a little bit uppity and it's fantastically snarky. But the problem inherent in all of that is the idea that there is some sort of absolute right or a million shades of wrong. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I'm wondering if our notion of right and wrong or mm -hmm. good and bad or all the different shades of what are eventually going to bleed into some sort of morality behind mm -hmm. this. I'm wondering if those aren't rooted in some sort of nostalgia for what should be, or maybe some sort of techno optimism for what should be. I'm wondering if, I, I guess I'm wondering how much value there even is into that aspect of this discussion. Well, I, I, I have an answer that I think is in the spirit using Williams terms that, and because I'm using you, I have an answer that uses Williams terms because I do, I think I'm answering in the spirit of Williams. Um, first off, I would say that maybe the problem is the word morality. Maybe we should be using the word ethics. And, but, but even if you don't want to use that uh, and, and talk about ideas for why I like ethics is the reason why Aristotle liked ethics. Ethics is not something you could discuss in abstract. It's particular cases. And so there's always ideas. You discuss ideas when you talk about and beliefs and concepts when you talk about ethics, but you also necessarily talk about practical concerns. So that mingling of practical concerns with ideas, ethics, um, um, I would like to substitute it for morality, but if you don't want to do that, I would say no matter how you slice it, literally keeping on the Neapolitan metaphor, whatever, no matter how you cut it, um, I, I think, you know, ideas about the future are necessarily embedded or imbricated 
with ideas about ideal practice, good things to do versus better things to do. It's not just the past. You're quick, you say it's all nostalgia, ethics or morality. Uh, that would be the case if it's only in that particular temple register, we say, we, we can ask the question of what's good and what's better, what's better and what's worse. Um, but that's not the case. Any plans for the future, any discussion of the future, has to come to terms with those questions. So no, I don't think it's nostalgia to talk about ethics and morality. Well, sure, yes, but isn't there an element of nostalgia saying that this is morally, or I, I agree with you, ethically um, suboptimal, we'll say, to have old music killing new music allegedly it's nostalgic to have uh um i mean i i will answer yes if i you're defining the you're it seems like you're defining forgive forgive me for saying mm -hmm. this it seems like you're defining uh you're setting up a binary here where technology which is anti-human is necessarily the fucking future and therefore anything that is not any kind of schema that is not based in a technology that crushes the human spirit um, is deemed as nostalgic. Well, and I reject that binary. I reject that binary. Well, I, I think <laughs> as you embrace that binary. That's okay, no, 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 no. It's, it's an easy binary to reject when you frame it like that. But if we're going to talk about, um, you know, moving into a post genre musical world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or a post album a disjointed yeah, yeah. an intentionally disjointed thing if we are going to uh mm -hmm. break oh, i see where you I, i'm interested in where you're going here if, this is if, if we're gonna break the lines that delineate one form of music from another mm -hmm. then are we going to get upset about that because those forms bring order and we need that to make sense of it or are we going to embrace some sort of chaos and say something beautiful comes out of this? You know, there's, mm. that's what I'm saying about it. It's not mm -hmm. about, Oh my God, there's technology. I, this is all technologically grounded, directly, of course you know? So, Absolutely. so it's not the infusion of technology. That's the problem. I think that the scale that technology enables makes it interesting mm -hmm. and adds a new dynamic to it. But at sure the same does. time, we've always had radio, you know? So, um, the, well, the, not always, right? Well, McLuhan but I would it, say not always. No, and that's fair. But, but modernity, time, but modernity. Yes. I mean, if we say that we've been in modernity a long fucking time, then yes, we've always had radio. So my my question, the, the binary is not technology bad, you know, <laughs> and the um, human good, a, a human good, because it's, it's it's necessarily an interface, and 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 uh, you know, the the tension between the two is what gives meaning to all of this. And I'm not I love saying it, that we swing from one side to the other. What I'm saying is, when we look at what the contemporary archive for music looks like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the problem that your traditionalists are going to have is that the place of the album is marginalized. It's still there, but it's marginalized. And in terms of what gets played, and then. I don't know. Do people still buy music? I guess we buy subscriptions to the archive. We don't buy music in the same way anymore. And, and so people still do buy music. I mean, it's not a majority, but people still do buy musical and physical forms. So the question then becomes like, is, is the streaming 
service world, right? Are your Spotify's mm-hmm. and your Apple Music's? Mm-hmm. I, I I'm resisting a binary in, in sense, but I guess if we're going to talk about morally or ethically, you know, uh, prefer uh, better or worse. Um, I, my question is, is this basically just a discussion? If we're going to talk, because we started the episode by talking about a moral alternative. So if we want to change that to an ethical alternative or just an alternative, are we really just talking about the death of genre? Well, but here's the thing. Uh, I, I, I'm going to answer your question sideways because I think where you went, you know, I got, uh, you see my residual uh, uh, humanism there that I went, ah! you're you're bringing in a binary of anti-technology versus the human ah i'm scared um but listen i i loved what you did there and we i can bring down the temperature in the room here or bring down my temperature by 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 responding to what you said i think i don't have an answer to the question you just framed but i do have a comment on on your arguments and i would say hey i love your arguments and actually um we have a a strong point of intersection here that I think we should elaborate on um, because I think, you know, it's a, it's a good place to go. And it's a point of confluence between what we're saying. You shifted pretty soon after I yelled and screamed and in pain, you shifted to another, you modulated your comment to talk about um, collecting my thoughts here you modulated your comment to say, practically speaking, does this not just mean the, we're living in a post-genre world? And, and, and shouldn't we embrace the post-genre world? And my response to that is intuitively, I guess this was also the question you just asked me. And I guess once you started talking about the practical world, the emerging, what seems to be the emerging future, the post-genre world. I I don't think we're in moral, ethical territory anymore. I don't think we're controversial. I think our media learning tells us to accept that moment and say that moment is not a crisis for humanity or for ethics. It's just a new morphing of the technology-human interface, which has been happening since humans had tools, right? So in other words, I, you know, I thought you were going back to a binary saying that technology is anti-moral or anti-ethical. But when you mo- when you change your topic to, no, Barry, we're we're in a post-genre world. Are you against the post-genre world? And my answer, trying, I'm trying to be informed by McLuhan, et cetera, is that no, I'm not against that, and that's not a crisis. But I would also say it's not a crisis to ethics. It's not a moral. Thing. It's an aesthetic thing, if it's anything. It's an aesthetic thing. And I think that's I think that's right. I think that it is very much an aesthetic. However, I think that we have to come to grips mm-hmm. with the reality that so much of the foundation that these discussions are built upon mm-hmm. is also aesthetic. And mm-hmm. so I don't, I, I think that's a brilliant can, observation. I, 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 think I would say, really hey, agree with you. It, it's, it's an aesthetic argument, but it's an aesthetic that matters. I mean, I'm going to yeah. go back to having Miley Cyrus jump into my yo-yo ma moment. And that's that, I, mean, I don't maybe. But I'm what not. does that indicate? But Michael, let me push you on that. So, so did you, 
did you no longer are you no longer subscribing to Spotify because of I that have aesthetic asked, translation? I have asked Spotify to please <laughs> in error? the name of all things holy never play this song again. <laughs> did you pray about it? <laughs> I I I I use some words that I should not use around children. Um and 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 so does and but here's the interesting thing about that, right? Like I mean, I guess if you know me well, you might you might take issue with this, but I'm a fairly level-headed person. I'm a fairly rational person, mm. but my God, when that happens, I am not a fairly level-headed rational person. But that just means aesthetics matter to you as they did me and maybe to our listeners, but you know, I, I don't know, but, uh, but I, I don't think we're in the ethical apocalypse when we're having I'm, this and I'm discussion. Not try, I'm not trying to say we are. I am trying to say that as the boundaries that created sort of genre and therefore created belonging and identity and so much of what was really very carefully curate, curated and delineated as you know neighborly but different um, as those walls fall there is a sense of confusion for people like me, and I would argue people like you who relied on those differences oh, sure. for understanding. Uh, and, oh, absolutely. And no, so when no and this and this gets no us argument. back to, to to our dear friend Ted Joya, who's arguing about you know the death of new music at the hands of old music. And these are, you know, the I mean that's the same thing with just a you know just a slightly sure. different window dressing. And so I, I think maybe it's not a moral or ethical concern, but I think that it's a massive shock to the sense-making apparatus uh, for people who, uh, you know, again, for I, I'd say what anybody over the age of 20. So, you know, Barry, we like, we wrap these episodes up with uh, you know, a takeaway, like what is it? What, what's your final thought? What's, what's the final offering for this? And I think that's it for me. Um, and rather than rehash it, I'm just going to say, I think that the problem that we're seeing is that streaming music has created a post-genre world and that that's hard for people who came up in, uh, as I did or you did, um, to immediately embrace or make sense of. So there's my takeaway. What, what, what are you walking away with? Uh, I, I think I share your takeaway. I, I, and I, you know, I, your experience of the medium of dealing with the medium and, and the ways in which your, your, your practice clashes with some of your older ideas, older ideas that you uh, formed around music when it was in different material forms or a different kind of structure of the list, different structures of listening experience, prior structures of listening experience. Uh, that's one of my takeaways. I guess my other takeaway is something uh, we were talking about a little bit earlier, um, that it's not just, Joya, who's not media, not thinking about the specificity of the new digital medium of streaming and the new experience of streaming music. It's not just Joya, but even Chris Gow himself, himself, the Dean of American Rock Criticism, perhaps he gets off some zingers on Joya. And, um, but I, I wonder if even Chris Gow, if even the great Dean is sufficiently aware of the way in which his experience of listening to music in the current moment is being structured and determined by the particular in media environment. And what McLuhan, in other words, neither Joya or McLuhan 
are being McLuhan or, or uh, Christgau are being McLuhan savvy enough. And what that specifically means is what McLuhan enjoined us to do is to be fish out of water for a moment and to reflect on the ways in which the entire, not the content of our medium, but the ways in which our entire media environment structures our thinking or can influence our, or can influence or determine or shape our thinking and our emotional, our effective relationship to music. So I think that's my takeaway. I like it. I like it. Well, I feel like we could, we could go and go and go with this, but uh, you know, all, all good things must, we're going to push pause. Let's just push pause. Um, Mary, this was fun. This was fun. Thank you so much. Uh, I got oh, but Michael, thing. one thing before we go, I talked about this issue. You spoke about this issue, but who haven't we heard from? You, dear listener. So uh, like, subscribe, tell us we're full of crap. Tell us we need to get rid of my, Barry needs to stop his McLuhan fetish. What is his problem? McLuhan's been dead for 30 years, 40 years. Why does he have a man crush on Marshall McLuhan? He must stop. It's sick. Something like that. <laughs> so let us know. Let us know what you think. Uh, and Barry, in the meantime, while we wait for the flood, um, th again, thank you. Uh, this was a lot of fun. And uh, I, I got a feeling we'll be, we'll be back. All right, Michael. It was a pleasure. Take right. care. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Critical Media Studies Podcast. To find out more about the show, check out our webpage at criticalmediastudiespodcast.com.